Okay, so let's, let's, let's dive right into the issue of alcohol. Um, alcohol um, in Scripture, let me, let me just start, let me tell you where I'm going, okay? This, it, for those of you who know my uh, speaking, this, this helps me to organize my thoughts and, and, and may help you. Here's what I want to do. I want to just start by looking at kind of um, the, the presence of alcohol in Scripture, looking at, looking at some verses where, where you find that. Um, and then I want to, and then I want to deal with arguments against it, because there are some good arguments, and you'll hear some of those. So people, people come to me and say, "Here's why I don't." Um, and pe- men I respect deeply would say, "Here's why I don't think uh, drinking alcohol is a good thing." So we're going to start. I'm going to give a biblical defense. Then we're going to talk about arguments against it, and then I am going to end with. Um, an application to those who would say that they are opposed to it, and there might be, even be some here, which, which, which is great. I'm, I'm glad you're here. Who would be opposed to this practice, and then words to which is most of us here who are um, okay with this practice, and you, 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 I think you probably need some, um, some admonition this evening as well. Um, we all do. Um, so that's where I'm going to go. I'm going to go with the Bible, deal with, de- deal with objections, and then do applications to both, to both sides. All right. Let's just start with the Bible and its, and its view of alcohol. Let me just say this from the beginning. Um, alcohol is, is very prominent in Scripture. It is actually a pretty major theme. Um, and if you study, if you, if you, from beginning to end, if you start looking at what the Bible says about it, it's not just, it's not just talking about alcohol. It actually uses alcohol, it uses wine, to illustrate some pretty important redemptive concepts that are in the scriptures. Um, here, here's what I can say. I'll sum it up, and then I'll, and I'll, and I'll show you from scripture. Here, here is what I would say would be the Bible's view of alcohol. Alcohol's overconsumption is condemned. No doubt about that. But its consumption is permissible, and this is even where I'll get controversial. It's, it's permissible and even encouraged. Now, if you don't if you don't want to drink, you don't have to drink. Okay, I'm not gonna I'm not here to like try to convince you to drink. That's not the point of the evening. But when you look at Scripture and you and you look honestly at Scripture, what you're gonna find is that overconsumption is condemned, but consumption is permissible and even encouraged. All right, let me just throw some numbers at you so you know just how prevalent this is in Scripture. Um, there are 145. I guess you could say positive references to alcohol in the Bible. 145 positive references. There are 62 neutral references, meaning um, it just it's alluded to, it's mentioned, but they're not trying to make a point about its goodness or anything. And then there are 40 negative references to alcohol, meaning here's the danger of it, here's why you've got to be careful, and we're going to get to that in a minute. So 59% of the time when, when it talks about alcohol, it's in a positive light. 25% of the time, it's in a neutral light, and 16% of the time, it's warning. The Bible has an, what this means is that the Bible has an overwhelmingly positive view of alcohol. Um, it acknowledges the dangers, and there are dangers, we're going to get to that. But wine is seen as a good gift of God to be enjoyed properly. Properly, and we're going to see what that means. Um, so let me go beyond those numbers and just give you some examples, okay? I'll do some Old Testament and New Testament examples. Now, let me just throw some out there. Um, if you're a note taker, you can just write these down and, and, and look at them yourself, but, or you can just listen. Uh, Genesis 14, I'm just going to run through some examples that are prominent. Genesis 14, 18, Melchizedek, great high priest of God, the type, um, a, a figure of Christ. He offers wine to Abraham. Um, Esther 5, Esther 7, Esther, who's known as a godly Jewess, participates in a banquet of wine. Job, who is seen as righteous in the eyes of God in chapter 1 um, and 13, we see that this man whom God looks at and says, this man is righteous um, in the earth, partakes of wine with his family. Deuteronomy 14, 26 says that it is a good thing to buy and drink wine, and then literally in the Hebrew, wine and strong drink in the presence of the Lord. It commends that. Um, Psalm 104, 14 through 15, is a psalm about the goodness of God's provisions in the world. And he's praising God for all that God provides, and included in that is God's provision of wine. And even more compelling, the psalmist says, God blesses us, he gives us wine to make the heart glad. For the purposes of making the heart glad, 
the gladdening effect of wine is even celebrated in Scripture. Song of Solomon, uh, 1, 3, 4, 7, 9, 8, so many passages. Sexual intimacy is compared to the joys of wine. So when the, when the scriptures give you a picture of the, of the pleasure and joys of sex, use wine to illustrate it. Isaiah 25, 6, the prophetic image of God's coming kingdom is a feast full of fine wine. Isaiah 55, 1, the prophet's famous invitation in, in Isaiah is for the thirsty to come, the needy to come, and enjoy wine without price. Come buy wine without money. Jeremiah 48, Hosea 2, Joel 1, Haggai 2, all the prophets, lack of wine is presented as the judgment of God, which is interesting. When wine is not there, God's judgment is upon them. And then on the opposite, um, Genesis 27, 28, Deuteronomy 7, 13, 11, 14, Joel 2, 19, Joel 2, 24, um, 3, 18, Amos 9, I'm sure you got all those. Provision of wine, provision of wine is presented as a blessing of God. And this is very important to understanding the Old Testament. When you talk about God's blessing and judgment in the Old Testament, consistently, the picture you get is that um, the judgment of God is synonymous with him restricting wine, taking wine away from his people. And the blessing of God is when the wine flows freely. That is how the judgment and blessings of God are illustrated in the Old Testament. All right, New Testament. Let's turn to the New Testament and see. John 2 is the most important passage in the debate. I think um, it is an unavoidable reality that Jesus turned water into wine. This is his first miracle that is intentional. Um, this was not merely a demonstration of his power, um, but a demonstration of the ethos of his kingdom, which is celebration. I'm here to bring a party. That's why Jesus came. His intentions were that people might enjoy his miraculous wine. And even more so, listen, this is where it gets like ugh, a little uncomfortable. Take it up with Jesus. The people had already had their fill of wine, and Jesus wanted them to have more. This is huge implications for the alcohol discussion. Um, not only did Jesus not condemn the use of wine, he encouraged it even considering its effects on making the heart glad, yes. And now, to me, that should be the end of discussion. Um, I don't know how you can get past that passage when talking about the Bible's view of wine. Um, some people try to say that it is non-alcoholic wine. Just, it, it's, it's just not true, okay? So don't listen. If somebody says it to you, just smile at them. But, it, um, it, this is Jesus. This is the Lord Jesus saying, hey, I don't want the party to stop. Let's keep it up. And that has implications for the way you view Jesus, for the way you view his kingdom. I don't know how you view Christianity. You should view it as a party. Um, and that should end the discussion, but unfortunately it doesn't because um, for some of you who raise your hand who grew up in a context where this is wrong, you'll understand this. Um, the cultural, the cultural um, stigma of alcohol is so deeply embedded in American Christianity that even though you have these passages which are so obvious, I've told this story before, um, the, a past, pastor friend of mine was... Um, went to went, his first calling was at a fundamentalist church um where where he went into a city where where nobody you know it was just a sin for anybody to drink wine especially the pastor so he just showed up and just started drinking wine and you know deal with me and um and and um and and an old dear lady who'd been at the church forever came to his office one day and said you, christians can't drink and pastors definitely can't drink and John was patient with her and, and lovingly and gracious. He turned to John 2 and he just said, look, I mean, this is what Jesus did. I mean, this is what, what do you think about this? And she kind of hesitated. And then she said, well, Jesus should have known better. <laughs> so, so listen, what that shows, what that shows is how affected we are by cultural patterns. And the temperance movements and all that stuff that, that your parents and grandparents are coming out of. 
Uh, Matthew 9, Matthew 21, John 15, Jesus makes use of wine to communicate the reality of, of his kingdom. Matthew 11, Luke 7, um, Matthew 11, 19, Luke 7, 34 are really, really compelling verses. And it, it, not just for this discussion, but, how, but for how you live your life. Um, Jesus' lifestyle was such that he was accused of being a drunkard. Of course, he was without sin, and so that was a false accusation. But you can look at the way Jesus lived his life and see that he would be so aligned with sinners that he would be accused of being a drunkard. Obviously implies participation. First Timothy 5, Paul encourages Timothy to drink a little wine because his stomach is hurt. And says, stop drinking so much water. Drink some wine. Matthew 26, um, the enduring meal of the church has wine. He wanted his people to drink wine in remembrance of him. Think about the implications of that. Um, some Christians would argue that it's wrong to partake in the one drink that Jesus has commanded us to partake in. Matthew 26, again, in the same passage, Jesus' promise to his people is that he will one day share the celebration of consummation where they will feast and drink heavenly wine with him. So all throughout Scripture... What you see is a view of wine that is very different than um, American fundamentalism Christianity. So that's, that's scripture. Um, maybe it'll help for me to give you a little bit of a historical pres precedent to this. Um, it, it's helpful to look outside of our context for some of you that maybe um, travel to Europe or um, even in Africa. Um, you'll, you'll, see a, uh, you'll, see a, you'll see a different attitude towards this, and it's helpful to kind of get outside of of the American South, where it's such a stigma, and see, oh, like, it, it's kind of a, just a normal thing. So let me give you a couple of historical things where it wasn't such a hot-button issue. Um, some of the heroes of our faith uh, certainly didn't have a problem with enjoying alcohol. Um, John Calvin, who is a hero at our church, his annual salary, I'm, I'm trying to get TCPC to consider this, his <laughs> annual salary included 250 gallons of wine for him and any guests he might entertain. So his church said, hey, you need, you need 250 gallons of wine to host um, people in the church. Elders, there's, there's two elders here. Listen. listen. Um, Martin Luther, um, the hero of the Reformation, Martin Luther enjoyed the home brewing process. He ended um, every day with a beer. He'd come home and end with beer. His, his wife was a great... Uh, if you read the love letter, you know, all the reformers and the Puritans and all those people, they were brilliant theologians and terrible husbands and fathers. And it's a really black eye um, on many of them, except for Martin Luther. You've got to get into Martin Luther's uh, correspondence with his wife. He loved his wife, and uh, he wrote her the sweetest letters. And he, he would always entitle them Madame Brewmeister. <laughs> she made his beer. Um, that's probably why I love her. Even... Um, even the greatest Baptist, and of course so much of the, the, the anti-alcohol movement comes out of the Baptist church, and, and there are many great things about the Baptist tradition that I love and admire, and I wish we could learn from them. But the greatest Baptist who ever lived, Charles Spurgeon, enjoyed drinking, um, even fine cigars, um, I might add. And, um, and so, yeah, I could go through all of these people, and you can see, okay, these people that are kind of the heroes of our faith, yeah, this was a big part, and it wasn't as big deal. Okay, so, you know, that's, that's scripture, that's history. So what would people say, and you, maybe you're here, and, and, and thanks for being here. Maybe you're here, and you would say, man, I, I, still, don't, I don't think, still don't think it's right. And, and I'm going to go to the two main arguments that people bring against them, and I want to engage those arguments. First, the weaker brother argument. So let me, let me go through that. Um, in, in Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8, um, this has kind of been the trump card for teetotalers. Like, I'm allowed to say drinking's bad because I don't want to cause anybody to stumble. What is Paul talking about there? Um, here's what was going on. As Jews embraced Jesus as the Messiah along with all the implications of the gospel, they began to kind of awkwardly stumble around their newfound freedom in Christ. Particularly difficult for them was to give up their ceremonial laws, their eating laws that forever you had to do. You had to follow these dietary restrictions and so forth. And that had kind of defined what it meant to be a Jew for so long. To be a Jew was someone who didn't eat these foods. And so when, they, when, when Jews began to, to embrace Christ, they were kind of struggling with this new freedom. Like, I can actually eat that? Um, 
And, and so as you might expect, cultural habits don't die easy deaths. And the sight of people, the sight of the people of God eating pork was abhorrent. It was like you can't imagine how, how, how paradigm shifting that was for them. And so this was actually a big issue in the New Testament. They could not wrap their minds around the idea that someone could actually be a member of God's people and eat that. So what should those who rightly understand the implications of the gospel, that all food is, is clean and, and you can eat this, it's not a sin to eat this, what should Paul's talking in those passages, Paul's talking to those people, what should you do as someone who gets the freedom of the gospel, what should you do with these people who are really struggling to understand, who are really struggling with the freedom that is now ours in Christ? Well, Paul wisely encourages two things, patience and prudence. That's all he's doing. In essence, he's saying, listen, you're right. You can eat whatever you want to eat. You're right. They're wrong. But let us remember, the, let's love them. Let's not be like the air. And by the way, um, um, Christians who I'm cool because I drink, this is a good passage for you. Like, don't, don't flaunt that. Like I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Christian who really gets it because I, I'm allowed to do these things that you guys are scared to do. I'm, I really get grace. That Paul would just say, that's obnoxious. Don't flaunt your liberties and intentionally try to offend them. If they have you for, in the passage he's talking about, he says, if they have you over for dinner, don't insist on them serving something that they're not comfortable serving. And certainly don't try to get them to eat what, what you eat until they are at a place where they grasp the freedom and can eat without a burdened conscience. Paul's point is one that we should all heed. If that is, if that is, if someone who is so young in the faith that they wrongfully, and that is important, they wrongfully deem certain practices evil, we should not brazenly flaunt our freedom. We should not brazenly flaunt those practices and even make it our goal to get them to participate until they grasp the fullness of the gospel. We should be patient with them. We should help them grow in the implications of the gospel so they may participate with freedom, not in guilt. And the parallels, honestly, to alcohol in the Bible Belt are strikingly similar. Evangelicalism of the South, um, of which I'm, I'm, I'm happy to associate with, has formed a people, doesn't sound like many of you here, but maybe your parents and grandparents, have formed a people who deem alcohol as unclean, right? It's unclean. In fact, many Christians in the conservative church, just like the Jews in the early days, they cannot wrap their minds around the idea that someone could actually be a Christian and drink alcohol. That, like to your parents and grandparents probably, they're like, I don't understand a Christian like that. That doesn't make sense. What they've done there is exactly what was going on in the first century. Food is unclean. I can't imagine somebody being the people of God and eating that. I can't imagine somebody being a Christian and drinking alcohol, just like the ceremonial laws of Israel. But alcohol is not unclean. That's the point. God has called it good. I've already showed you that from Scripture. There, these, these are man-made regulations that Christ did not institute. In fact, he did the opposite. He participated in these things. Therefore, Paul's words from Romans 14 are very applicable to us. So let's apply that text, the weaker brother text, to our situation. Now, first, please note that the distinction of the weaker brother as those adhering to unnecessary, unnecessary rules. That's the weaker brother. Now, and the reason why that's important is it's not the alcoholic, um, the, the non-believer that might see you having a drink at the bar and you're causing them to stumble or something like that. that. That is not what the text is saying. The weaker brother is a legalistic Christian. That's the weaker brother. So this is how to engage them. I have found in my dealings, um, I have several people who struggle with alcohol and alcoholism. We're going to get to that in a minute. In my life, I have, find, I have found that to patronizingly say, you can't handle me having a glass of wine around you, it, it makes them feel like a leper. It ostracizes them. It, it, it makes them feel guilty for going out in community to where like I can't show up and people can't have fun because I've got this stigma about me. If you're viewing this as like people struggle with alcohol, the world struggles with alcohol, and I don't want to cause them to stumble, so if I drink, they see it, and they may want to have a drink, that's not what those texts are talking about, okay? Those texts are talking about legalistic Christians who call alcohol unclean. What do you do with them? Paul's encouragement has been, I would say, taken to unintended extremes to endorse the very weakness that Paul is trying to help. 
That's the irony of those passages. Maturity of faith is the ability to practice virtue without unnecessary rules. So ironically, the weaker brother thing has just created a lot of weaker brothers. Even still, the wisdom, there is wisdom here, so, so um, let's, but it's far cry from absence. If I have friends over for dinner, let's listen, let's just be wise and prudent. If I have friends over for dinner who are uncomfortable drinking, I'm not going to serve them wine with a meal. Likewise, if I attend a dinner at a house of someone who doesn't believe it's right for Christians to drink, I'm not going to make them feel like an idiot and insist they serve me wine. Um, I'm not on a mission to make all of these people who think it's wrong to see how crazy they are and think it's right. I, I want to be wise. I want to be patient. Um, I want to help them understand the implications of the gospel. And if that ends with us sharing a beer, so be it. But I'm not on a mission to be insensitive and mean to people who see it that way. And that's a good application for some of you with your parents and your grandparents who you think the answer is just to flaunt and uh, be obnoxious. Um, based upon Paul's writings, I think he would, he would be outraged to see Christians invoke his wisdom to justify what he despises above all else, legalistic moralism. This, the, the irony of this all is those passages are used um, to, to establish something that Paul hates more than anything else, which is legalism. But it should not be disregarded. We should, like Paul says, be prudent, wise, patient, loving, tender towards those who think alcohol is wrong. Okay, that's the weaker brother argument. Here's the other one, and, and I, honestly, I have, a lot more, I have a lot more appreciation for this one, and um, some people that I deeply respect hold this, um, and, and, and so, yeah, so, so let's engage this. The reason why many Christians choose not to partake is that alcohol is a unique idolatry of our culture that has destroyed many lives and is just something we should live in protest to. In other words, if this is so dangerous, and it can be, if this is so dangerous and has hurt so many people, then why perpetuate its use? Why encourage it at all? Why should Christians even mess with something that has destroyed so many lives and it has? And some of you have been affected by that. Maybe destroying some of your lives now. I don't know. That sentiment is a really noble one. Like, why would we even participate in something that's so dangerous and has had so many consequences and is such an idol of our culture? Um, now, the first, it must be recognized that the dangers of alcohol are not unique to our society. Its abuse is old as its inception. Alcoholism was an issue in the culture of Jesus, but Jesus, the Lord Jesus still partook in public and was even accused of being a drunkard. But even still, some would say rightfully that with the availability and potency of alcohol in our day, with the pervasive abuse throughout our culture, I think we can all admit that it is a dangerous idol of our time that has destroyed many people, many families. The question then becomes, how should the church respond to a culture infused with a dangerous idol? Now, here is where I'm, I'm going to, um, this is this thing called the reformed worldview is going to take over in, 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 my, in, my, in my approach to things. This is, this, is, this is how I believe Christians are supposed to do it. Um, I fear that people have one of two reactions. Either it's mere abstinence, the solution is just stop doing it because it is so dangerous, don't do it. Or it's just an uncritical alignment, we're just going to go along with the culture. The, the solution of abstinence is too simplistic, and it misses the calling of Christians to be agents of redemption. Our duty as a Christian, here, get this, not just in alcohol, but in all other issues, our duty is to bear witness to a new reality, is to be witnesses of how things are supposed to be done. We are to live life as it is supposed to be lived, demonstrating what a world looks like underneath the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. In other words, our testimony to the world is to make use of God's blessings rightly. We should be the ones who are discipling the world on how to drink, how to enjoy it, how to do it well, how to partake in alcohol responsibly in a God-honoring way, living witnesses of, God, of how God intended for this good gift to be enjoyed. The American church seems to only have two categories for this, abstinence or indulgence. The church is supposed to be the bearers of another way, of the right way, of the true way, of God's original design, the way demonstrated in Scripture. Here's the sad reality, people. Everything, 
Every good thing has been corrupted by the fall. Everything. Everything is loved too much in a fallen world. If something is good, man misuses it and turns it into an idol. The calling of God's people is not to wholly renounce those good things, those good pleasures, but to demonstrate properly ordered pleasure. All good things are corrupted by the fallen appetites of men. The calling of God's people is not to call those things bad. It's to redeem those things by doing them well. We understand this ethical principle in other areas. We live in a society consumed with sexual immorality. What should we do? Abstain from sex? No, we should be the ones who enjoy sex rightly. We should do sex rightly. Um, we live in a society consumed with food addiction, either um, overindulgence or... Um, or, or the, 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 the wave of eating disorders that are out there. What should we do? We should be the ones who enjoy food rightly. We live in a society consumed with materialism. What should we do? We should be the ones who engage material possessions rightly. We live in a society with sports idolatry. What should we do? Not watch sports, not participate in sports, protest against it. No, we should be the ones who enjoy sports rightly. We can talk about ambition, we can talk about greed, we can talk about work, we can talk about power, we can talk about social media. The list goes on and on of the idols of our culture. Alcohol is like every other dangerous idol in our culture, and it is dangerous. God's people are called to dethrone the idol by doing it rightly, by showing the world another way. Good things gone awry by the appetites of fallen men. Christians are called to redeem these things by demonstrating God's original intentions as outlined in scripture. Okay, so those, those are what I would say to arguments against. Let me conclude here towards two people. Um, towards those, and I, apparently there's not many here because a lot of y'all have drinks in your hand. But concluding thoughts towards those who still would say, I'm opposed. Um, I would like to humbly challenge, if that's you, or maybe you have people like that in your life, and maybe I can just kind of, um, this could be an, uh, an empowering, a, a mentoring type deal, discipleship, equipping. Um, I would like to humbly challenge those who are opposed to use of alcohol to test your heart and search for hidden traces of this pharisaical legalism that Paul so hates, that the New Testament so hates. Here are some good questions to ask yourself if you are against this. Um, would you experience intrinsic guilt for drinking alcohol even in the privacy of your own home where you could not cause a weaker brother to stumble? Like, would you just, having a drink, would that bring condemnation to your soul, guilt to your soul? Would you be ashamed if you were seen drinking alcohol by Christians that you respect? Does the sight of Christians drinking alarm you? Like, wow, that's unclean. Um... Is alcohol singled out from other things as the sign of Christian maturity? That's a big one. One of the things that really breaks my heart about institutions I love, um, my wife went to a seminary where she had to, out, out of everything, she had to sign a thing saying that she wouldn't drink. Like, out of everything? Really? That's what you choose? Um, or, 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 or in Christian organizations where it's like, okay, well, we're not going to say alcohol's evil. But leadership's not allowed to drink, right? Like if you're going to lead the Bible study or you're going to be the preacher or you're going to be on staff here, you're not allowed to drink. Do you have this view of alcohol? Is this the thing that defines like mature Christianity? Like it's okay, but really mature people don't do this. Search your heart with questions like this. And if your answer to that is yes, then listen, there's something far deeper and much more sinister going on in your heart. It is called legalism, and this is the number one greatest offense to the person and work of Jesus Christ, 10,000 times more dangerous than alcohol. There is so much more at stake here than the issue of drinking. For many, this is a window into your entire view of Christianity. Please understand that Christian sanctification is nothing like other religions, nothing Every religion is the same. Do these things, don't do these things. And noticeably in the don't do of every religion is alcohol, right? 
Christianity is something entirely different. It simply cannot be reduced down to a list of proper behaviors. The aim of Christianity is total renewal, complete restoration, new creation from the inside out, followers of Jesus. How does that happen? It will never happen by saying, I can do this, I can't do this, I can do this, I can't do this. That's actually, actually ironically, hindering sanctification in your life. So it's certainly not wrong for Christians to choose not to partake. However, if that's you, that you should really test yourself to categorically say that participation is wrong, to heap burdens upon others by holding them to personal convictions, to bind the conscience of others in a way that Scripture does not, to look down in judgment on those who partake as less mature Christians, to declare evil what God has declared good. These things are absolutely wrong and completely antithetical to Christianity. We're not playing games here. Now, to most of you here, those who in, are in favor of alcohol, let me close with a warning um, to you who choose to partake. Some of, you, uh, some of you are listening to me, and inside you're shouting amen, and you're like, oh, I wish my parents were here. <laughs> Be careful. Be careful. That amen may actually be justification for an unhealthy vice in your life. Please listen to me. If you are getting drunk, you are in sin, period. Period. And I don't ever want there to be an event at Taste Creek Presbyterian Church where somebody gets drunk. This dishonoring the Lord. If you are getting drunk, you are in sin. The Bible is stern against overindulgence, not just as a sin in itself, but why the Bible is so so stern against it is that it is a pathway into wickedness of many kinds is what the proverbs say yes it's wrong to get drunk but you really need to be careful with it because it leads to that's why people hook up when they're drunk you don't have judgment you don't have abilities and if you can't repent then you are addicted and you need to admit it and get help okay it is an addictive substance if you can't control yourself you have a problem. And don't think that TCPC is here to baptize your problem. You need to get help. You need to seek, you need to seek treatment. But even outside drunkenness, let me offer just a word of caution. Wine is presented in Scripture as a good and important part of feasting, of celebration. And the kingdom of God is all about celebration. But you need to understand this. We're not there yet completely. You know what I'm saying? The day will come where we, the, the world is redeemed. All is happy, and we're going to party for eternity. We're not there yet. And so life now in a fallen world for the Christian is, is, a, is a rhythm of feasting and fasting. And you see this in the Old Testament. There are times when, when, um, when, when they call for fast, and then there are times where they just throw the biggest parties. And both are very important. And this should be the mark of our life. Life is good and created to be enjoyed, but life has also fallen, and we are people on a mission. The people of God in Scripture certainly had times of celebration and feasting, but it wasn't all the time. There was times of fasting, because there's a lot of work to be done here. We're not just here to party, okay? I like to party. I like it a lot. I have a lot of fun, and I got a lot to do. There's a world that needs to be redeemed. There are lost that need to be saved. There are injustices in this city that need to be taken care of. We're not just going to party in Lexington while those things are unintended to. So um, there is this rhythm to your life of, of fasting and feasting, of labor and celebration. And I'm not going to bind your conscience by telling you what that looks like for you. Um, with the help of community around you, you can figure out those healthy boundaries. But this side of glory, living in the realities of a broken, fallen world filled with evil and injustice, we are not supposed to be living a party all the time, okay? All right, I'm going to end with... Um, good. I'm going to end with... Um, I want to read, a, I wanna read a, a quote from C.S. Lewis uh, from Mere Christianity. And um, it's a little bit of a lengthy quote, so let me, uh, let me just, just hang with me here because he really says it well. This is what Lewis says. Um, Temperance is unfortunately one of those words that has changed its meaning. Temperance now usually means teetotalism. In the past, temperance referred not specially to drink, but to all pleasures, 
And what it meant was not abstaining, but going the right length and no further. It is a mistake to think that Christians ought all to be teetotalers. Islam, not Christianity, is a teetotal religion. Of course, it may be the duty of a particular Christian at a particular time to abstain from drink. But the whole point is that he is abstaining for good reason from something which he does not condemn and which he likes to see other people enjoy. So you might have to abstain, but you should still in that abstaining like to see other people enjoying it. One of the marks of a certain type of bad person is that he cannot give up a thing himself without wanting everyone else to give it up. That is not the Christian way, Lewis says. An individual Christian may see fit to give up all sorts of things for special reasons. Marriage, food, meat. Not food, you can't give up food. Meat. <laughs> Vegetarian, I suppose, is what he's talking about. Beer. The cinema. But the moment he starts saying those things are bad in themselves or looking down his nose at other people who use them, he has taken the wrong turn. So let us enjoy the good gifts of God rightly, and may he keep us from the follies of extremes, both the extremes of indulgence and the extremes of abstinence. I said I was going to close with that, and I'm going to close with the gospel. Because I can't help myself. All right. Because we're about to sing. Um, one, of the, one, of the, one of the problems, I'll give you two problems with ignoring the realities of wine and scripture. You lose two really important points. The first is that this creation is good and given by God to be enjoyed. There is nothing, nothing, nothing more frustrating to a parent than buying a present for your kid and your kid's like, eh, and never play with it. Drives me nuts. <laughs> There's nothing more frustrating to a parent than to give your kid good gifts and then not to enjoy it. God created all things to be enjoyed. I don't know if that is paradigm shifting for you, but please note this world was given to be enjoyed. And so if you approach this thing with a teetotaler fundamentalism and say, call something that's good evil, it's like looking at a parent and calling their good gift evil. This is good and it is given to be enjoyed. So. One of the problems with not understanding this robust view of alcohol is you don't enjoy God's creation like it was intended to be joy. It's a good thing. The bigger problem is its role in redemption. You might say, what role does wine have in redemption? Actually, it has a big role. Wine connotes, in, in the scriptures, in the Old Testament, wine connotes blessing. A cup of wine is a blessing of God, but there was also a different cup, a cup that was spoiled wine, and that was called his, his, the cup of his wrath. So there's this cup of blessing that in good times God would give to his people, and then there's this spoiled, nasty vinegar wine that was represented his cup of wrath. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he held out a cup of wine to his disciples, and he says, I want you to drink this. I want you to drink this, and I want you to continue drinking this until I come again. This is the enduring sign of my grace to you. Drink this good cup of wine. And then after doing that, he went out to a garden, and he fell down on his face, and he, says, Jesus, he said to his father, he said, Father, let this cup pass for me. It is the other cup, the cup of, of bitter wine, the cup of God's wrath. And on the cross, he cried out, and he said, I'm thirsty, and, and what did they give him? Wine, vinegar. He drank the bitter wine, the bitter cup reserved for me. That's in a, that's one of the songs we're singing. That's why we're singing that. And then he says, I'm not going to drink wine again. I'm not going to drink wine again until I can drink it with you in the heavenly feast. And so it's this picture of our Savior handing us his blessing of wine Drinking down the bitter vinegar of God's wrath and then saying, when this is all said and done, we are going to party. If you call wine evil, you miss that entire narrative of scripture. And, and it's one that you should not miss. Um, would this good gifts argument apply to marijuana? 
Okay, now listen. All right. Um, okay. Here's the problem. Here's the problem with weed, among many things. Um, listen. There is no way to smoke pot the way we are drinking alcohol this evening. Okay? You smoke pot to get high, to get drunk. There's no moderation to marijuana. You smoke it, and you lose yourself. Okay? So if one drink of alcohol would make us all drunk, then I would say don't drink alcohol. Because clearly in Scripture, drunkenness is a sin. We, uh, we are, lose ourselves, we lose ambition, um, we have no self-control, and so it, it drives me crazy when people put those two on the same level because they're not on the same level. There is no way to enjoy being high rightly, okay? So no is the answer. You can't apply um, the good gift. That is a misuse. That is a misuse of God's good gifts, um, which... I guess hemp is a good gift of God. But no. All right. Uh, okay, yeah, this is a good one. And so many of you, uh, I, think, I think this applies to many of you. Is it possible or would it be unproductive to share this with a parent who claims to be um, putting forth a higher witness of not drinking alcohol and looks down on drinking alcohol as a sin um, and a weaker witness? So I guess that person is asking, like, can I, can I, record, can I send this recording to my parents? Um, yeah, you know, um, I can't answer that blanketly. Um, I, I would test your heart, and if it's, I'm going to get them, then don't send it to them. If, hey, this is, this is a loving dialogue that I'd love to have, um, I'd, I'd love to talk about this. Um, I'd love to talk about the implications of this for the gospel. Um, yeah, I can, see an, I can see an occasion where you could listen to him and say, let's get together and talk about what this is because I want to learn from you and I'd love for you to hear where I'm coming from with this. Um, but if, if, you, if you and mom and dad are in a feud um, about this, then, then no, do not use this as ammunition to get at them. Um, but if you seriously have a relationship with your parents that's in the spirit of love and, and mutual encouragement and you want to grow each other um, in this, yeah, I think it'd be a great dialogue to have about the gospel and, and the implications of it. So honestly... Um, um, honestly, I, I, I can't answer that question for you. I could probably answer it if, you, if we sat down for 15 minutes and you told me your situation, but I can't blanket answer that. Really, it depends on your relationship with your parents, the spirit in which you do it, and, and so forth. Um, oh, man. Yeah. Um, what if we struggle? What if we recognize that we struggle with legalistic tendencies but don't know how to get out of it? I want to be able to enjoy a glass of wine without feeling guilty, but it's still a struggle for me, even though I've been told it's more than okay. What would you suggest? Um, boy, that's a good question. So, yeah, uh, I would suggest two things. The gospel, um, immersing yourself in the gospel. And when I say the gospel, I don't just mean um, the gospel as a worldview, the gospel as a system of ethics, the gospel as... Um, as determining um, how you view Christianity. Um, in other words, I would not spend my time saying it's okay to do this, it's okay to do this, trying to convince yourself internally that it's okay to do this. Um, I think that is a symptom of a bigger paradigmic issue in your life of how you view this whole thing in Christianity. That's why I said like, if you say it's wrong to drink, that, that means that there's something far deeper going on. So I think what you're asking is just the fruit of your view of Christianity. And God's patient with that. Um, and, and I would just, I would just, you know, honestly, I, I, I would just give yourself grace and patience and, and working out, um, like Paul says, with the weaker brother, like, this is hard. Like, it's hard to get everything in our world, everything in our life, every other religion works like this. You do this and you don't do that. Christianity doesn't work like that. That's not something you can um, that's not something that you can just get overnight. Getting the gospel, getting the ethics of Christianity is a lifetime journey. And so give yourself patience and um, continually go back to the heart of the issue, which is the gospel issue. And I would say do that in community. Whoever, whoever texts me that, um, I, bet, I bet 
I bet this, I, I bet this right here, um, the spirit in which this is done, the spirit of this community here, I bet, I bet it feels a little freeing. And the reason why that is is because you're doing it in community. You're not sitting in your house like trying to convince yourself that this is okay, this is okay. Like you're around people who are embodying this. So I think community is really important. And, and so that'd be the first thing is gospel and gospel community. The second thing is I would get outside our culture. Um, one, of the, one of the most freeing ways to do that, and that's why I, I talk about John Calvin and Martin Luther and all these heroes, or um, you know, go, go visit Europe or something like that. This is just an American Southern thing, y'all. It really is. It is just a Bible Belt thing. Everywhere else you go, it's not. And so I just think, like, I would say to you, if you're struggling with this, it's pretty um, culturally arrogant of us to basically say to the rest of the world and the rest of the history, you all are all wrong. And we in the American South, are, the teetotalers in the American South are the ones that figured out. That's pretty, it's pretty arrogant. So I would say two cultural moves have to happen. The gospel culture in your life, in community, and then just outside of our culture. Um, get out of it. Okay. Um, uh, does anybody, somebody just texted me. How do I feel about sorcery? Okay, you're a smart aleck. <laughs> Okay, okay. Uh, um, Greg Finger. No, that wasn't Greg. That wasn't Greg. This is just what Greg said. What Mary asked. What did Mary ask? Mary asked about sorcery. We Oh. Who you got in the final four? Uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter. We know who's in this. Um, all right. Uh, does anybody, uh, there's one question I'm going to follow up on. Does anybody um, have the courage to engage this? Um, we got a couple minutes. Now, hold on a minute. You're an elder. Everybody, this is Alan Adams. Alan, uh, Alan is an elder at our church. He's here to make sure I don't uh, get drunk or say something stupid. Um, <laughs> right. I like it. Bring that to the next session meeting. We got one Tuesday night. All right, what's your question? Um, starting from a cultural point of view again. Yes. And uh, because we as we are DCPC, and I'm saying that because of my experience in missions, uh-huh. we'll go to other parts of the world where the people you're working with have one or the other view of alcohol. Mm-hmm. What do you say to us in that? Okay, that is such a good question. And it brings me to a really good point. Okay, did, did you understand this question? Because I understand about half of what this man says. <laughs> um, he leaves me voicemails, and I call him back. I'm like, bro, I, I, I did not understand a word. <laughs> um, so what he asked there is, what he asked there was, um, what about in the missions field? Like, what if you were to go into a culture where it's, wrong to drink for whatever reasons i would even say in islamic culture um okay there um i would say i would say what paul says prudence um wisdom patience um you know i I would not flaunt it i would not go in there and 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 just cause an uproar i would put the supremacy of gospel witness above your enjoyment of wine but, so, so yes to all of that, but, and I found this fascinating, I did not expect this. When I went to a predominantly Muslim culture to um, speak at, at a deal with, um, and, 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 to, to, for some of you are at TCPC Macklin, when I went to visit them in Africa, we would worship, and I would get done preaching, and, and this is an Islamic African culture, I would get done preaching, I give the benediction, I walk out, and they had a cold beer waiting for me in church. And we would get together and we would do Bible studies, and the night would end with everybody just partying, drinking, and they'd get out their music and they dance and they drink. And and I and I said to Macklin, like, man, the mosque is next door. Um, you're reaching Muslims. And he said, That's why we party. 
He said, because I'm showing them life. I'm showing, like what I was talking about, I'm showing them how to do life. Like it's very strategic for us to enjoy the good gifts of God because they are in bondage. They are in slavery to rules. And we're just going to show, we're going to show the whole world around here, this is how life's meant to be enjoyed. So that's done with wisdom. Um, That's done with patience and prudence. You don't want to go in and just offend cultures. And I would be willing to die I, became, I become all things to all people in order that I may, might win some. So there, there are certainly occasions in the missions world where, you, look, you're going to have to die to your burden. But, but at the same time, a, a strategic part of gospel witness is demonstrating to, to a world like, hey, come on in. The water's good kind of deal. So does that answer your question, Elder? Am I fired? Okay. All right. All right. Other, other questions? Okay, uh, yeah. How do you model drinking to your children? Is that like controversial? Uh, Yeah, I mean, everything I just said, do it rightly. Do it rightly before them. Listen, when you get into parenting, and and, and they're they're in that stage, they're getting close to that. When you get into parenting, um, I don't want my kid to be a drunkard, okay? So um, because of that, I refuse to be the no alcohol in this family, you will never see me drink family. Because I don't want to be a drunker. And when he gets older, and you know this, when he gets older and he starts rebelling against mom and dad, the first thing he's going to do is go out and just start partying. I want to show, hey, this is how it's done rightly. This is how it's done rightly. And um, so, yeah, we, we, we drink in front of our kids in a respectful way. We call it dad-dad juice. <laughs> Can't touch dad, dad juice. And, uh, and yeah, so uh, we do it well. And, um, you know, my kids, my kids are never going to see me drunk. They're never going to see me drunk. Um, and many of you, this is, many of you, this, 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 this conversation probably does sting a bit because many of you have seen your parents drunk. And it brings back bad memories. I, I just, my parent, my kids are never going to see me drunk. Um, but I'm also gonna, not, not going to treat alcohol like it is the untouchable sin because that is the best way to drive them towards drunkenness. So, yeah.